Hello, my friends, and welcome to Taking Stock, the podcast from the business desk of the Yorkshire Post. This edition is the second in our series, and our guest this week is Jill Thomas. Jill Thomas is the boss at Future Life Wealth Management in Sheffield. She is the former president of Sheffield Chamber of Commerce, and she is one of the people who I turn to when I need clued in on what's going on with financial stuff, frankly. She is incredibly knowledgeable. I almost learn a huge amount from talking to her every time we speak, and I hope that you'll learn a great deal from the conversation that we had today. As ever, if you've got any comments or feedback on the podcast, please do get in touch and let us know what you think. But for now, let's turn over to what Jill has to say, and I hope you enjoy the ride. Hello, Jill. How are you? I'm very well, Mark. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. And for the uh, purposes of everyone listening at home, this is being done via a WhatsApp voice call. So I'd much prefer to have spoken to you in person, and I look forward to doing that again, hopefully not too far away. But thanks a lot for coming on this afternoon, because I gather you're pretty busy at the moment. Very busy, unusually so. For, to say I'm locked in a, in a bedroom looking out over the garden at the moment... Um, their work days are about 12 hour days at the moment with the amount of work that's coming in so uh, um, you're a, a welcome break from the monotony of financial services. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it, I'm glad to hear it. So Jill, for those of you who uh, don't know you and don't know the work that you do and, and who you are, why don't you, uh, would you be okay if you could just run through that for us briefly and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. I'm Jill Thomas. I own a business called Future Life Wealth Management, which is a financial advisor and wealth management uh, company based in Sheffield. Um, I've been in financial services for over 35 years and a financial planner for over 22 years of that time. Um, and I was also the second female president of the Sheffield Chamber of Commerce at a, a time when we had two fundamental things. We we had Brexit, uh, and also during that period of time was the big conversation, the early conversation about HS2. That, that was a huge piece of work that went on at that time. It feels like a, an absolute lifetime ago, but those of us will remember it extremely well because there was a, a lot of sort of backwards and forwards with regards to where the actual station would be located in in Sheffield and you guys had to put in a lot of work to uh, to and to win the argument about that it should be in the, the city centre of Sheffield rather than close to Meadowhall. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the argument was whether or not it was a, a Meadowhall terminal and it would follow the M1 or alternatively even at Victoria. But uh, at the end of it, the decision was made that it would be put at Sheffield Midland Station. And it was purely done on economic it's not just about HS2, it's also about Transpennine and it, and it was HS3. And the, and the link particularly to go up to Leeds and also to Manchester was fundamental to our arguments at that point in time. What was it about the, the area that made you so keen to get involved in, in, for want of a better expression, campaigning life and public life? Because you're not native to Yorkshire from memory, are you? No, I'm actually born a Geordie, um, but I have lived and worked all over the UK, including a period of time in London. Um, I came back to uh, South Yorkshire uh, in the 70s, then disappeared off to London and then came back again in the late 80s. Um, and, and it was a combination of a couple of things. Um, I started a business 10 years ago, and one of the, the uh, fundamental marketing plans was to raise the profile, not only of myself, but also 
um, a new business in the region. Um, and part of that strategy was to look at engaging with businesses. Fundamental to that, we found one of the best areas was the, the Chamber of Commerce Network, which is which is a fantastic organisation for interacting with other like-minding businesses. Um, and then I sort of got asked to if I'd go and join the board. I then got asked uh, if I'd like to be junior vice president. And then three years later, I ended up being the second female president at the chamber and in that period of time we we had two of the biggest decisions to make as a chamber in in my presidency which was interesting but incredibly tiring at that time because um work was about 40 50 hours a week and then you were doing about another 20 hours on chamber work on top of that um, it was a. It, we mentioned that it was a, a successful period, though, when you were in charge. And you know, I I remember going to uh to your dinner at the um at Sheffield Cathedral at the end. It, it, it was a. It was just a wonderful convivial evening, and it's one of the things I think I like about well about Yorkshire full stop, but the cities like Sheffield in particular. You know, the, it, the despite being a massive city with huge population and very um varied and diverse business community, everyone kind of knows each other and gets on really well and almost feel like people are sort of pulling in the right direction. Absolutely. I mean, that, that evening, even today, I am stopped by the Sheffield business community reminded me of that evening. It was held in the Sheffield Cathedral. It, it was stunning that night. And we celebrated, amongst other things, the music and, uh, in the city. And we had Heaven 17 playing Sheffield Cathedral that night. And um, it, it, it's still, when I hear um, Heaven 17 on the radio, it takes me straight back to that evening. But it was also, I think that night was, was really important because we started the um, presentation of the, the, the honours for, for business community and our very first one that we put in were the women of steel, the, the ladies of steel. And th their story was fundamental, I think, even more so now with what's going on with the coronavirus. When we actually look at the situation that these ladies were taken out of their sort of homes where they were um, doing, you know, housework. They were put into the steelworks. Their menfolk were on the front line um, fighting, and they were literally creating steel for tanks and armaments when bombs were falling around them in the east end of Sheffield. And, you know, I walked past the, the monument uh, in Sheffield only a matter of weeks ago, and I always look at that with pride because I met most of the girls um, before, there's one left now, but before they died. And I spent an afternoon with them and I just sat with them and hearing their stories, I was having to dig my, my nails in my palms of my hands to make sure that I didn't cry because the, the, the emotions of what they went through, it, it wasn't about being in the situation of, of a bomb landing on them. They had to create something for the war effort. And in many ways, what, what I learned and I heard about then, 75, 76 years ago, is exactly what's going on now with the people supporting the NHS, you know, people even, do, you know, saying that they'll go into the fields to, to, to bring crops in. It, it, it's like the world war effort has come back again. In situations like this, it brings out, uh, of course, it brings out the worst in some people, but far greater than that. I think it really brings out the, the best in people. And when we kind of reflect, it's, it's almost impossible to do now because it's just such a fast moving situation and, it's just it's too incredible and too fantastic in the the truest sense of the word to 
to take in properly. But I think when we get a chance to do that, we'll really look back on this period and just think, I can't believe that we, and I use that word uh, in the sense of the, the whole nation, that we, we did that, the things that individual families and businesses and individuals full stop did to keep the country going and keep people safe and well and fed. I think we'll really hopefully look back on it with a tremendous sense of pride because that will be what gets us through this crisis. Absolutely. And I think in many ways we needed this after the Brexit debate. You know, it fragmented communities, it fragmented politics. What we've seen is this, you know, a, 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 a band-aid being put back on, on communities. And it, it was essential because I think in the post-Brexit environment, we had we'd forgotten to like each other and love each other. Well, that's my big hope when we come out of this, is that we're going to just start looking at the world in a very, very different place. I mean, look, you're absolutely right. Looking back on the, 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 the interminable debate around Brexit for all those years, it looks like absolutely nothing now. It looks Why did we waste so much time and energy when there were more important things to look at and you know those important things are something we're staring in the face now? I, I think you're definitely right. I think it's going to hopefully bring society together in a much more genuine and warm sense and I think that'll feed into almost every aspect of society and particularly into business I think that the way it's going to be incredibly tough but I think when we start to reconstruct it'll be done on a much more compassionate and uh, on a basis that really looks at you know how, how can we all win out of this how can we all benefit from this how can we build a genuinely vibrant economy that does actually involve everybody yeah, and, and more importantly, the way that I think as communities we're in the situation where we are going to the corner shop or we're, we're buying stuff um, locally, more locally, and getting people delivering to us, you know, that is one, is one of my desires post the emergency um, lockdown being released, is that we actually remember this click attitude where we put money into corporates, many of them who don't remit uh, tax to the UK, is absolutely essential in the post-medical emergency that we look after those people that have looked after us and we continue to buy from them and buy local. Well, the analogy you draw with the women of steel is, is it definitely does ring true because if you look at who the sort of people are that are keeping the country going now, it's there's people that were most underappreciated even just you know a few weeks mm. ago. You know, delivery drivers, supermarket checkout staff, and of course the the NHS workers from surgeons down to people that are cleaning the halls and uh, and 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 wards. You know, those people are we're utterly reliant upon them right now, and the the hope, of course, is that when we do emerge from this crisis, that that is properly recognised in every sense of the word. It's not just a case of saying thank you and clapping on a Thursday night. It's recognising that these people are absolutely crucial to our society. And food production is the other one as well. You know, that we're going to have a chronic lack of um, personnel available to actually get food from fields to shelves. And there will be a, an, an effort of will and a movement, I'm sure, to make sure that that does happen. But, you know, we just we can't take these things for granted anymore, can we? No, we can't. And, and one, one thing that came out of Brexit, we, we, we may or may not have had a cliff edge and a no deal. But the one thing that Brexit did do was make a lot of businesses actually plan. And I believe one of the reasons that we will get through this medical emergency and more importantly succeed on the other side is because of the planning that was actually conducted because of Brexit. I think we are in, in a better position from a business point of view, 
because we had to do an awful lot of work coming up to the 31st of December. Um, you're obviously somebody who's, uh, whose day-to-day business is, is helping people, basically helping people with regards to their money and I can only imagine the stuff that's coming across your desk right now. Um, I would, you, you've mentioned how busy you are. It can't just be, obviously people are going to have increased time on their hands and so therefore are going to be looking at things they should probably have looked at some time ago. But what kind of things are people approaching you about at the moment? Well, it's interesting. We, we work with people, we mentor them and mo- most clients understand that we the best results we get is when we invest money on bad news and bullets, not on good news. And it still astounds me today that we're in the situation where people want to pay full price. So what we saw was very, very unusual situation where the investment market so very rapidly pulled back. And it, it happened in a matter of three weeks. Um, it, was, it was staggering how quick we saw this. Now, the analogy I would put, if we remember how we were as a society, we got the whiff of something that was going on out there. We all charged off down to the supermarkets. We oversold and we overreacted. We went and bought toilet rolls, although everyone was telling us that this bug didn't cause you any tummy problems, but we went and bought that. And when you look at investment markets, it is reaction of what is happening in, in our world. And that's what happened. The investment markets overreacted because they didn't have enough information to make fundamental decisions on proper data. So it went overboard. But what was curious was a couple of Fridays ago, Trump stood up within the last hour of trading on Wall Street. And what we saw is the um, the equity markets in America actually lose 9% just purely on a politician saying things that might be not as accurate as they possibly could be. And what has happened is we've, we've had to manage that situation coming up to a fiscal year end, being in the situation of making sure that money is in the markets to be invested. But when I went to, um, came back after Christmas, I started from the position of working out how we would manage capital gains tax uh, gains to being in the situation within weeks, literally ripping up a plan that had taken me nearly a week to create, to how would I manage capital gains tax losses for the benefit of clients. And it, it was staggering at the speed that they was actually doing. But we're now in the situation in the, in the next fiscal year of getting monies in for clients as fast as possible because we believe we, we still have volatility out there, but they can benefit from investing the money at considerably cheaper prices than it was in January this year. What are people looking to invest in at the moment? Because, the, I mean, this will be overtaken by events very quickly, but the markets are a bit uh, a bit safer this last 24 hours. It's presumably because it looks to be a sort of flattening of the curve uh, in many countries, and we hopefully are at the start of that stage in the United Kingdom. Um, what are people looking to put their money into at the moment? Well, I think with anything, it's got to be relative to their attitude to risk. It has to be for, relative to their ability for loss. But investing is a bit like a table. Um, if you invest in a specific asset class, you've got very few legs on your table. And a couple of legs come off your table, your table falls over. And what we encourage people to do 
is to have a broad spectrum of investments and put as many legs as you possibly can on the table in different asset classes. If a couple of legs fall off and you've got 100 legs on your table, your table's still standing up. And it's, it's really now a case to make sure that clients are, as far as possible, risk-managed in the environment that we're in. Now, um, we don't know what the stimulus um, that governments have put in around the world and the reaction they're going to have. What was interesting is how speedy the stimulus around the world and governments reacted. That the, that was one thing that was a true plus point from, from this because um, we had uh, cash being given to companies, cash being given to individuals, um, it started very quickly out in Hong Kong, where they were given um, US dollars and on Hong Kong dollars. And it started a, a, a movement across the world to try and support the economies. Now, the reaction of that normally means when you put quantitative easing in there, that equity prices can uh, uh, perform very, very well over a period of time. And we've certainly seen this with the bounce that has happened. So it, it's making sure that you invest money in the right place at the right time, but you don't over-egg your risk profile because there is still going to be significant volatility out there post, uh, you know, the next couple of weeks when we hope that the uh, the curve on, on the um, uh, um, contraction of, of the disease uh, is curtailed a little bit. Before we started the podcast, you told me something that I found utterly extraordinary, which was that uh, the savings that people were making on a particular item, which they purchase regularly, is something that they're now looking to funnel into investments. I wonder if you could tell people listening about that. Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've seen the battle uh, between the Saudis and the Russians on oil price, and we're virtually at a, a, a low at the moment. We won't be far off a, a pound a litre at the, the, um, at the petrol pumps. And what people are starting to do um, is actually utilise the savings in the uh, petrol that they would normally use and actually put that into investments like a, a monthly savings ISA because they're not spending the money, um, buying units at a cheaper rate, and then when they go back to work, they will revert back to the amounts that they would normally pay. So what they're doing is rather than saving the money on, on deposit, getting next to nothing money if they're getting anything at all, they're actually utilising that um, into um, into investments. I mean, I, I, they've often heard me call the, the coffee cup challenge, which is, you know, if you don't buy a cup of coffee, which is £3, and you paid it off on your mortgage, how much it would bring the mortgage down? It was a client that actually said, well, I've, I've reverted not the coffee cup challenge, but to the petrol pump challenge, and they are investing those monies in. The potential is at the prices that we're putting the money in now for long-term investments, they will win considerably just purely from that little movement for maybe two or three or four months. Um, it's a trying time in, in almost every sense, you know, for the economy and for people's physical and, and mental health. And, you know, the, 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 the country's under so much pressure right now. But it does seem that there's a lot of positive steps that individuals and businesses can take in this environment. And um, I, I wonder what your thoughts were on that I'm, I'm just thinking at the moment you know the, the repurposing of manufacturing to help with the health service and the, the myriad kind of examples of businesses trying to help NHS frontline staff um, particularly in the food services sector and there, there are a lot of positives aren't there and it, it, I just wonder what your, your thoughts were on that because as, as we said earlier we're, we're seeing the best come out in a lot of people 
Yeah, and I think as business leaders, we are there to mentor. We have to set a tone. Um, you know, it would be very easy, given you know the three or four weeks I had, to be moping around and, and telling clients, "Oh, it's doom and gloom." It isn't. You know, it's up to us to set, to set a tone. And when you look at manufacturing businesses, you look at Formula One race teams or manufacturers that, that make um, uh, Hoover. Uh, um, is the best in Britain. We're getting entrepreneurial engineers that are, are working for the forefront in a, and in the new environment that we're going to have after the 1st of January, without the support of Europe in, in whatever guise, this is absolutely essential. There is a lesson to be learned in a post-Brexit environment. I think we are learning it now that we are still Great Britain and we have that entrepreneurial spirit. Everybody is a small cog in the wheel. And I think if we can just keep this momentum going, um, you know, for a period of time, particularly when we're in the situation where maybe we can make some drastic decisions in a, in a post-Brexit environment, a post-medical environment, where we might even take that off to get people to actually encourage them to spend and to get goods and, and, and manufacturing on the way in the UK. I think there's an awful lot of positive to come out of something which is unbelievably heartbreaking. Um, I've been asking quite a few people about this. It's one of the subject matters I find utterly fascinating at the minute, and it's been brought into sharp relief by what's going on. But I wondered what your thoughts were, or thoughts were rather, on universal basic income, because I, I'm yet to be convinced that it's a, a viable option. But if we had such a thing in place now where every uh, grown-up got X amount of money every month, regardless of whether they were working or not, then we'd be in a pretty decent position at the moment. Now, clearly, you don't bring in such a radical shift in the way that monetary policy and the economy is managed just because we've had a health crisis. But I just wondered what your th thoughts were on it. Um, you know, we had a couple of people running for the Democratic nomination that were running on a UBI ticket. Um, how do you see that as having any sort of potential? I think this is going to prompt um, a challenge to the way our tax works, how we fund certain things, and particularly when you look at adult social care in, uh, in particular, I think we've fundamentally got to go back to absolute basics and put the challenge out on a cross-party basis. This isn't, this isn't about politics. This is more important than that. And everybody has got to be looked after in whatever gaze that they do. And when you look at the people that are earning at the moment, probably the least earnings, they are the ones that are supporting the economy the most and keeping it going. And I think there is a, a challenge now down to all politicians, irrespective of the colour of their politics, to redesign the future direction of our country. I think you're definitely right, and we're particularly blessed in some sense, respects uh, respect that you know we have uh, new leadership within the Labour Party. Um, I think that you know, God willing, when uh, the Prime Minister is back to full health and is out of hospital, you know, there, I, I think you're right. I think people are just going to start looking at things in a very, very different way and realizing that sort of incremental shifts is not the order of business anymore. We need radical steps, and it, there's not. It's not like this is without precedent. You know, if you look what was done with the, the New Deal um, and other such, you know, big sort of leaps forward in terms of changing the, the way that you manage a nation, you know, that you can do it. And this is the time more than ever that we should really try and seize that because we won't get an opportunity like this again.
No, it's once in a lifetime. But we've also got to accept that small steps, all gym together, become big steps. And, and every little facet has got to be challenged. And the outcome that we could get is significant, and I think it is. It is once in a lifetime, and we need to take this opportunity. But we've got to hold politicians to account uh, on the post-environment for this medical emergency. We've got to encourage them and support them, but hold them to account to make those decisions. One concern that I've got in all of this, Jill, is that there's going to be a you know, paying off the money that's been spent on keeping the economy going mm. is going to take some time. And mm. this is obviously coming at a, a chapter in our history where we were as a region, particularly in Yorkshire, but the north of England more generally, we were actually starting to get somewhere. You know, the devolution deal for Sheffield, South Yorkshire went through not that long ago. There was one in the process mm. of getting set up for West Yorkshire, we've got a firm decision on HS2. There's a lot of political support behind Northern Power. So, you know, things that are absolutely crucial um, to the future prosperity of the North of England. And my worry is that some of those will be deemed um, surplus to requirements um, as the nation's purse strings get considerably tightened. I think it's also our observation if you look at um, the decisions in the last couple of days when the government has actually gone to the Bank of England and gone into the default fund to try and raise monies there because they couldn't raise that on the gilts. What we've got to acknowledge, though, that base rate being at 0.1% currently means that borrowing money is incredibly cheap. It's never been cheaper in, in the lifetime of the Bank of England base rates. So... It's a balancing effect, but if we are in the situation where we are to get ourselves out of the debt and there is going to be considerable debt on the back of the decisions that have been made by the Treasury to support the economy during this medical emergency, what we've got to acknowledge is we've got to get the economy going. We've got to invest in it. Now, we make stuff in Yorkshire. We make it very well. And the one thing that has happened is we have been able to, to move into different areas at a time when we, we needed that. We've also been in the situation that when China was on a lockdown, we couldn't get components from China. And we actually brought that, that work back into our region to be in the situations there where we were um, fulfilling our own um, requirements for manufacturing. Now, it became less of a situation where it was... It was the but it was having a commodity uh, uh, that was available for manufacturing. We've also got to acknowledge the position of sterling at the moment. Sterling is still very, very competitive, which means that our exporting um, opportunities are considerable. So this is now, I think, in, in a post-environment, I understand where we're going on, on uh, debt. I think that is fundamental. But we've got to get a marketing of the region and also the country, finding out what our, our best buys and our opportunities are. And we've got to go and flog our wares uh, in, in the environment post, post this crisis. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. I mean, the opportunity to really kind of showcase the potential that lies here is colossal. And I think we've got good leadership around the north of England. I think that the interworking is starting to... Uh, starting to get a lot stronger and you know the old analogy of Yorkshire almost being seen as a series of warring tribes you know that model has got to go completely I think I think Sheffield is going to need Manchester and Manchester is going to need Leeds and Newcastle is going to need Liverpool. you know the, the 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 amount of interworking potential there is great and you know if we can get those infrastructure improvements if we can devolve power to the regions they're all things that 
the Yorkshire Post been campaigning on pretty relentlessly now for several years. If we can get those things in place, then it's a proposition which is not only a a, a boon to the north, but a boon to the whole country. You know, you, if you've got a economically empowered north of England with great manufacturing and professional services potential, green energy, technology, all of those sectors that we're doing well at the moment, um, we could be potentially accessing a worldwide market on an unprecedented scale. Absolutely. We, we could be world beaters. And part of this is that we've actually got to realise and change our mindset to realise we could be world beaters. We still forget this badge, made in Great Britain, made in Yorkshire, made in Sheffield. They are iconic. And even when I travel all over the world uh, and on holidays or sometimes on work, when they say, where do you, where do you come from? And I come from Sheffield. Ah, oh, steel making. Well, OK, maybe that's a historic uh, fact. But we have now incredible manufacturing in this city, which is world leading. And we've got to go and sort of bang that drum out there and make sure people are aware of this. And it's not only for politicians to do it, it's for each of us. You know, sometimes I hear quite negative, oh, I come from Yorkshire or I come from Sheffield. Let's just turn that into a positive because people buy on positivity. And if we do this going forward, we will have an economy that will be something that the rest of the world will look and realise they want some of that. And I think that's what each of us, each person that is in business or an employee has got to engage in that going forward. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good point. And I'd, I'd like to see that kind of sensibility applied uh, to the economy. But the, if you think about Sheffield's a fantastic example. And I think the first time I, I, I met you properly, I, I said that I thought that Sheffield was one of the most important cultural cities in the world. And I, I feel I could support that with evidence in a debate with, with anyone, frankly. But, you know, if you think about the, the, the great uh, culture that's come out of Sheffield, it's astonishing, particularly in music, and it's known the world over. And if you could apply that to a sense of place, full stop, not just the economy, but the city at large, then, you know, it would be something that people would really want to attach their names to. You know, it's something that's given the world an, an awful lot for over a long, long period of time and still is doing so. It's up to all of us to sell the opportunities we have. And I go back to a comment I made earlier to you. It's absolutely fundamental that we move away from this click culture that we've got, this time-poor click culture that goods arrive. We have got to support our local businesses. The one thing when I was president of the chamber I realised is that 80% of businesses in the United Kingdom have less than 20 employees. You know, was it Margaret Thatcher that said we were uh, uh, a country of, of shopkeepers? Well, maybe that, that the shopkeepers is inaccurate, but you can imagine if just all the 80% that have less than 20% employees could just increase turnover by, let's say, 10 or 15% on the net profit line, employ one person. That would just solve a lot of our problems virtually immediately. And that is down to each and every one of us to go and embrace those local communities and those local people who have looked after us now to actually make sure, one, they survive, but two, they grow. Because they are creating GDP for the future, but they're also creating opportunities for our children, for jobs, but they're also going to keep us in pensions when we get to pension age as well. Jill Thomas, I think that's an absolutely fantastic point to end on. Thank you very much for coming on and speaking to us today. I really enjoyed what you had to say. 
Thank you very much, Mark. Nice to speak to you too. Nice to talk to you as well. And that, my friends, is that. I think you'll all agree that Jill is absolutely awesome. She's just such a warm and intelligent and very, very passionate person. We're very lucky to have her in this region and I'm very grateful to her for coming on the podcast this week. That's it for this week. I hope to have another one out next week. Um, We have got a few people lined up to come on, all of whom are very interesting and well-known in the region and we're going to keep doing this for as long as possible. We had excellent response to the first podcast. If you've got any thoughts or ideas or any observations that you would like to make about this edition of the podcast or indeed the previous one, please drop me a line at mark.cassie at jpi.com media.co.uk or get me on my Twitter, which is at Mark Cassie, all one word. Thank you very much indeed for listening. and I'll see you on the next one. Goodbye.